0: Welcome to Sounding History, a podcast about music, history, climate change, and culture. I'm Chris Smith from Texas Tech University in the USA.
1: And I'm Tom Irvine from the University of Southampton in the UK.
0: This is a podcast about the global history of music with a twist. Our history is not shaped around famous performers, composers, and works, but rather as reflections upon the relationship between sound and the exploitation of Earth's resources. Today, scientists and historians alike argue that around the year 1500 of the Common Era, human extraction of natural resources began to change the climate itself. They call this new era the Anthropocene.
1: With the Anthropocene came capitalism and the globalization of many aspects of human culture. Along with settler colonialism, mass enslavement, and environmental destruction. We explore how processes like these have shaped 500 years of history, and the worlds of sound we occupy today. Concentrating on three core categories, labor, energy, and data, we seek new, different, and challenging stories about music on a global scale.
0: What shaped the world in which we find ourselves? Who are its many voices? We invite you to join us as we unpack why sound is, when, and for whom. So let's begin. One of the things that we talk about in our opener, and that we will talk about a lot in this podcast, is about the interactions between technology and economics and history and empire and the way that those shaped soundscapes one of our key themes is emerging this week, which is about competing soundscapes at the fringes and boundaries and collision points of empires. Tom has a postcard, we call them postcards for the podcast, a moment in sounding history somewhere in the world in the last almost 500 years, over 500 years. And I have another, and in these podcasts, we're going to try to explore what happens when it An empire and its soundscape and its intentions for that soundscape meets a different empire, either in the imagination or in reality. And so we're talking about boundaries and borders. So when
1: you write global history, Chris, one of the things that we both noticed, right, is that you can't tell the whole story of everything that happened everywhere, right? That's not the point. The point of writing global history, which is for listeners who aren't working in the academic vineyards that we work in, global history is quite popular at the moment as a concept. And what I've learned about global history from writing it myself in the last five years or so is that global history is about connections and about contacts and about borders. And so we've picked up a couple of examples that are about how music can make borders that aren't the same necessarily as the borders on the map, or how you might be able to compare the musical or the sonic borders to the borders on the map. And I think that's that's where we want to go with this set of postcards, right?
0: Absolutely agree. And about the ways in which these imperial meetings, which are sometimes amicable, and more often competitive and anything but amicable, they're not impermeable boundaries. These are borderlands or they're frontiers, right? Yeah. And sometimes they're physical frontiers, but sometimes they're also sonic frontiers where one soundscape meets and blurs into another. And sometimes they're not even, quote, tangible boundaries. They are more imagined boundaries. This is what one culture imagines another world to represent or another soundscape to represent. And I think that's what we have happening in both of these postcards for today. So take us into this first one.
1: Yeah. So I'm going to queue up a copyright-friendly few seconds of a very famous aria for operatic tenors out there. This is Ich baue ganz auf deine Stärke from Wolfgang Amadei Mozart's Die Entführung aus dem Seral or the Abduction from the Seraglio K384. That's just a few seconds of uh, what I hope you all agree is a very beautiful piece of music. If you don't know it or don't know this opera, we'll put some suggestions in the show notes for good full versions on various services that are available. So I want to try a different way of explaining this opera. The Abduction from the Seraglio is a serious romantic comedy that takes place in an imagined Islamic place. It's a piece of the late 18th century. And it's a story about some Christian slaves to women and a a man who need rescuing by the boyfriend of one of the women. By the way, not an unusual subject for the time. There was another uh, opera that was more popular. Well, was very popular in the years preceding this one, called Der Kaufmann aus Smyrna, the businessman from,
0: <laughs> which Smyrna, is not nearly as were, romantic a title. I must say. Yeah,
1: just it, it, it is. It is one of those titles that really doesn't so land. Doesn't really land with you. But um, that one, which is also a rescue, a rescue deal from the Islamic world, was set by three composers in quick succession, just in the ten years before Mozart wrote this one. So, this is a serious comedy, and comedies require stock characters. And so, in this opera, there is a stock character called Osmin, who is the watchman. He's trying to, you know... Prevent the slaves from being abducted, and he's he's Turkish. I put that in in um, quotation marks, inverted commas here in the show notes or in, in our in our working notes because uh, there's not really clear where where yeah he's kind of Turkish, but it's not really clear where this is taking place. It Could be North yeah, Africa. Yeah, it's
0: kind of an imagined Turkishness that we're
1: seeing. Yeah, it, yeah, it's definitely an imagined Turkishness, and and it's it's the subject of many 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 words in the musicological literature because Osmeen comes out as a kind of stereotyped, othered, what's the right word? He's basically an idiot. You know, He's easily duped with alcohol. That's one of the sort of key plot hangers in this thing. In fact, all of Osmeen's music uh, is... It's a stock in trade, right, for Mozart scholars because Mozart generally didn't write down on paper like what he was thinking when he composed. But in this particular case, he did because he wrote a letter to his father from whom he was separated for the first time because he was living in Vienna and the father was still in Salzburg, Leopold. And he said, yeah, so I'm writing this opera and it's got this awful character in it, but I don't write ugly, awful music ever, even for the worst people. I don't want to talk about that. I'd love to talk about that. Tom doesn't want to
0: talk about that. This is not Wolfgang saying to Leopold, but I don't want to talk about that, Papa.
1: No, I I highly recommend to all listeners who are interested to like delve into that letter and to delve into all the stuff because it's like a key text. Basically, it's a remarkable window into Mozart's brain, probably the only one. But that's not what we're here for today. I want to talk about this other beautiful number that we just heard. This is the Baumeister aria or the architect's aria. The reason it's called that is because the the leading man character actually is an architect and he's one of his, his subterfuge to get into the court where the Islamic ruler is holding his girlfriend hostage Basha Salem is the is the ruler's name his 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 subterfuge to get into Basha Salem's court is yeah, I'm an architect and maybe you need my help but the aria talks about Building on Which love. Which is a
0: beautiful metaphor, unlike their Kaufmann of Schneerne. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Let's leave the Kaufmann of Schneerne when none of us know what that actually sounds like. And that's the problem. That's a problem. We'll get to, you know, we'll come back to that. So this aria is about the power of building on love, building a world, a beautiful garden, if you will. It takes place in a garden, right? I don't want to suggest that it's some sort of message about overcoming the differences be- between East and West, although. In this opera, reconciliation between the East and West is definitely some kind of a theme, right? Because the rescue fails quite comically. There's little chasing chasing each other around on stage and all that kind of stuff. But the local ruler who has, it's been indicated that he's going to be pretty horrible to the people, he, anybody he catches breaking his rules. He decides to free the slaves, not because he's sorry for them, but because it's the right thing to do. Because it turns out the father of the architect guy of Belmonte once freed him. And he hates the father. The father's a jerk, yeah? But he says, I'm going to do this in a disinterested way. And that's
0: that's an Enlightenment theme. Like, why do something good? Because it's the right thing yeah, to do. And that'll be a theme that will come back in a lot of our postcards as we move through the sounding History podcast, which is, what do people understand themselves to be doing? Or what does a composer like Mozart understand himself to be conveying in this musical theatrical narrative about values in a world that's changing.
1: And so one of the things we're trying to do here is actually offer new frames for familiar stories. So this is my, I'm going to have a go at a new frame, okay? So I'm thinking about the real world that Mozart was living in in 1781 when he started moving to Vienna and in 1782 when this opera was first performed. And in that real world, the Islamic world was... Really, not very far away. I mean, physically, it was about a hundred, a few hundred kilometers away. About a, you know a few days of travel in those days from Vienna to the border of today's Bosnia, so into into the former Yugoslavia. And it was uh, not very far away either in their mental landscapes, because in the sixteen sixteen eighty two, right, the siege of Vienna. So the Ottoman Turks had actually besieged Vienna. That wasn't living memory anymore, but it was really quite present in storytelling. A hundred
0: years before, they'd been at the gates,
1: right. The Ottoman siege of Vienna plays some sort of a role in the sort of general, you know, imaginary of, of Europeans, but in particularly locally, it's a big deal. And what I want to talk about is how those who were in charge in Austria, a little parentheses here, but, you know, it's a history podcast, so now I'm going to get into the long grass for a second. So the rulers of Austria were also the rulers of something called the Holy Roman Empire, and the Holy Roman Empire was not the same as Austria. By any means, this is a common mistake that people make, but in this case, they're very different things. The rulers of Austria and the Holy Roman Emperor were usually involved, like any big imperial ruler in Europe in those days, they were usually involved in constant, endless, low-level conflicts with their neighbors, over borders, or because of dynastic feuds constantly changing alliances. There's an almost
0: kind of housekeeping aspect to this, that the emperor and those counselors who were involved in shaping policy are constantly trying to read geopolitical events for how it impacts and what it indicates about shifts of power and whether it presents vulnerabilities or new opportunities. It's a very restless, constant border-based vigilance.
1: So restless is a really good word here because we in the 21st century have a different way of thinking about war and peace. So we think about total war, which has been sort of a thing from the, or the American Civil War maybe forwards into the 20th century. And then we think of like, well, either there's this like total war or there's peace. Whereas in most of the world, you might argue actually today that we're in the same kind of thing, like it's the low level asymmetrical whatever. But I mean, in most of the world and most, most of history and in Europe in particular in this time there was always some sort of violent confrontation going on. It was very rare that there wasn't. So the 18th century is really like a century of, of wars. And a lot of these wars are about access to resources. And so I was thinking, I was thinking about what's actually going on in 1780, 1781 in Vienna. And what's going on is that there's a new ruler, so Joseph II, who succeeded his mother, Maria Theresia, He'd actually been the Holy Roman Emperor for quite some time because women couldn't become Holy Roman Emperors. It's a bit of a confusing business, but he gains complete control a few years before this of Austria and he's the Holy Roman Emperor. So he's actually a, a big deal in European politics and he decides he wants to reorganize the way Austria functions as a state. And one of the first things he does is he tries to figure out like where the borders are. Because in those days, that you know, cartographically, they're not really that well mapped out. There's no GPS. There's no, you know, that all comes in the 19th century. Not well, GPS doesn't, but in the 19th century, people start really mapping out, like, which tree is on what side. But in those days, it's not really clear. And one of the reasons he wanted to do that was he was trying to measure how much labor is at the disposal of the right. state. So people who talk about Joseph, like historians, they're like, well, he's, he's emancipating the peasant labor from the condition of serfdom, which he is, but... What he's really doing is he's trying to figure out how many there are. And he's where trying to there.
0: rationalize resources.
1: So the result of this is that this relationship with your neighbors turns into kind of a different one because the issue is like, well, how much of this land between me and the Turks is actually mine to control and how much is theirs? Or how much of this land between me and the Russians? And the Russians are all now on my side, so how are we going to get together to make sure? You know, there's a lot of measuring and thinking about where the borders are, and that sort of hots it up. And the point I'm trying to make is this is not, a culture clash. I've seen a few abductions from the Seraglio that were like trying to cash in on this east-west thing, clash of cultures, particularly after the eleventh of September uh two thousand one. And by the way, and I'm not suggesting a maybe I am suggesting a new any opera directors out there, reach out, you know. F- it hit us up. My, you know, my details are all over this podcast. You can let me know. I've got some ideas about how to direct this opera. Um, what we're talking about is a low level war, state of low level warfare. We're not in uh, total war. We're not in perpetual peace. We're somewhere in the middle, and I think that has some implications for how to think through this music. So the first one is that imagining a beautiful love love song like this being sung in the garden of an enlightened Islamic ruler is not that difficult
0: for Mozart. And Especially audience. because there is this sense of physical and also kind of sonic proximity. And to me, it's particularly fascinating when you said earlier that this Ottoman ruler is a kind of enlightenment, he manifests enlightenment aesthetics about fairness and doing the right thing because it is the right thing rather than this trading of feud and vengeance. And that's a very different picture than, say, a more recent, more global war troped production of abduction might present so this is not really the the kind of the monstering of the islamic world
1: exactly so i think that we need to be careful when we think about what this opera means not to project our own dysfunctional geopolitical discourses onto it the second thing i want to say it's a subtle point but um conflict in the borderlands, the fact that Vienna is sitting in the borderlands, right, made for an atmosphere that's different than just peace. There's a sense of the that violence could, out, could break out at any time. And the aria that we started with begins with some very beautiful wind writing. And the wind players in Mozart's orchestra, they would have been professional wind players. But traditionally, they came from the ranks of the military. So there was a war with the Turks uh, five years after this, in the late 1780s, and it's not the case that the wind players in the in the National Theatre were or the Burgtheater were then you know like sent off to
0: to to march. But out. if I understand you correctly, the recollection of wind players as having been engaged in combat service is a, a, only a generation or two back, and these kinds of skill sets ran in families. So. These are maybe the sons or grandsons of of potentially wind players who had served, but even more than that, in terms of sort of imagined soundscapes and the soundscape of a forever war, as you described it in our when you pitched it to me, those sounds themselves evoke the martial. Even if the people making the sounds are full time, top notch musicians in Vienna, the sounds they're making and the associations with that kind of writing and with the people who played it are martial.
1: And that's a kind of tension that I think is really interesting for uh, – so I'm doing a really old-fashioned work interpretation here. This is like – so if you want to listen to this piece or look at it on, in a score, look at the wind players. Think about that. Think Look at the wind writing and think about how beautiful and unmilitary it sounds, right? There's plenty of military music elsewhere in the opera, but – the sound of the wind band is still a military sound. And so that's a really interesting how it sort of melts into kind of a romantic dream, which I think is which is really... I, I don't usually get so effusive in my work reading, but, I, I, you know, good, Mozart will do, do that to a guy. So as we pull up, as we head towards the next postcard, I wanted to um, talk to you a little bit about what happened after this opera was performed. So this morning I did one of those things, you know, like call a friend, you know, like on those, those quiz shows. So I reached out to a young American scholar named uh, Austin Glathorn, who works and researches at Durham University here in the UK, and I'm proud to say is my former PhD well done. student. It's amazing how clever people can get when they're taught by people who don't know much.
0: <laughs> so, so I'm like, familiar with the syndrome.
1: Austin's doing amazing work in the history of opera, the material history of opera in the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, he's got a book coming next, so shout out book coming next year from Cambridge University Press, Music Theater and the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, He reminded me that the abduction was a huge hit. So it got taken up by traveling opera troops all over Germany. Uh, Within two years, it was everywhere. And after our conversation, he emailed me a map, which we'll put on our website. And I've put here in our notes, Chris can see it. It's a map of where these troops went. So it's kind of the extent of German language or, you know, German origin opera troops. And you can see the opera troops went way, way down into the south East of the map. So the furthest point to the southeast is uh, Bucharest in today's Romania, which is really, really close to the border with the Ottoman Empire. And so Austin reminded me, he said, you know, this piece and all of its grappling with the neighborly relationship with the Islamic world, this piece goes right up to.
0: Literally. The and now we loop back and we're not just talking about abduction sound world metaphorically or sonically moving close to the border with Turkish music, but we're talking about an actual physical performance by a bunch of people in wagons happening in Bucharest less than 100 kilometers from where those sounds were coming from within the Ottoman Empire.
1: This network map could be a kind of physical material soundscape map, right? It creates a kind of sound world. We haven't talked about all the actual Turkish music that's in the infurion, in the abduction. There's plenty of that. The opera is a meditation on this, uh, I guess we've been arguing, right? It's a meditation on this borderland relationship. And you can see from that map, you can see how wide, in the days before mechanical reproduction or electronic transmission of sound, just how widely a musical object like this, right?, can travel. And I guess that's a good bridge to your postcard, because we're going to move now. So from Central Europe in the 1780s, we're going to move to
0: Singapore
1: in the 20th, 21st centuries.
0: Okay, thanks, Tom. So I want to pick up on this idea we've been discussing in the context of Mozart and the abduction and geopolitics in Southeastern late 18th century Europe to continue to talk about sound worlds meeting on the edges of empires, or actually even being enveloped within empire, or drifting outside and moving across boundaries, sometimes physical boundaries, sometimes sonic boundaries, or sometimes just imagination boundaries of imagination, the way that you've suggested Mozart imagines these sound worlds meeting in abduction. I want to talk about the kind of negotiations that happen in those kinds of blurred moments, moments of meeting, contestation, overlap, these porous boundaries of the imagination. Because I think in both cases, in this episode, in both of these postcards, we're talking about kind of competing soundscapes, either physical or sonic or even just imagined. And so I'm going to start out with a recording that was made in Singapore, on the other side of the world, much more recently in 2008. And this is actually a recording of the call to prayer, the the Muslim call to prayer, taken from Singapore Radio. that was a recording from 2008 taken from Singapore radio of the Asan or the Adan, which is the convention called the call to prayer. And it is intoned in the Muslim world, in majority Muslim populations, five times a day to call the faithful to prayer. It begins by saying, there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. And now is the time to prayer. And it's one of the fundamental practices in which observant Muslims, expected to engage, is that along with abstaining from pork and alcohol, along with doing acts of charity, along with the intention at least of making the Hajj to Mecca at least once in one's life, in addition, prayer five times daily is an essential part of defining yourself as a Muslim. And it's very significant that it's something that is carried by sound. It's a sound that, unfortunately, gets used in the West a lot of times if you're watching action-adventure thrillers made by Hollywood studios. You'll often hear samples of the call to prayer as an instant jump-cut cue to say, ah, we are now in the Muslim world, right? But to an observant Muslim, it says, we are here together. We are here within this sound space, and we are about to enter into this shared, sacred prayer experience. And it was one of the ways in which Islam, when it came out of Asia Minor and spread really very rapidly and very widely across the world. It, it's one of the reasons that that spread happened all across North Africa, into the South of Spain, into Southeastern Europe, and into West and Central Asia. It is a sound. There's a reason those movies use that sound. But it also has interacted, it's been forced to interact with the modernizing and urbanizing world. And particularly, I want to talk about in the context of the international city of Singapore, which began... As one kind of place that was majority Muslim. And in the 20th century, and especially in the wake of the Second World War, became a far more multicultural place and actually a much more secularized place in which public expression of specific religious affiliation is actually pretty tightly policed for reasons that we'll talk about. So, Tom, you're, of the two of us, you're really the scholar of the Pacific Rim, and of the encounters that happen at the Pacific Rim. So tell us a little bit about Singapore, where it is, and what it means in terms of Pacific Rim sound worlds.
1: Singapore is a city-state that sits in the Straits of Malacca, and it is surrounded by Malaysia. It was part of Malaysia, which was a British colony, until the early, early 1960s, and then in a kind of complicated way, it ended up going its own Way Singapore is, from the 19th century onwards, early 19th century onwards, Singapore was a colonial uh, city of the British. That part of Southeast Asia is, in terms of European domination, traditionally the Dutch corner, but by the Napoleonic Wars... So we're actually kind of backing into the late uh, 18th century. By the end of the Napoleonic Wars, the British were assuming more of a profile in that part of the world, and partially that's because... It's a uh, refueling and provisioning stop on the way to the east coast of China, which is a very important piece of the British uh, trade puzzle. Yeah, starting about 1800. And it is typical of the British entrepot. That's the fancy French word to use for those places where people come together, melting pots. It's similar and different to Hong Kong. It was treated as a kind of key military and economic space that the British didn't really want to dominate, like turn into a colony or settle with their own settlers. It's not very big. It was more a place that they just sort of let things happen. The British Empire had a habit of doing that sometimes, just letting things happen. And one of the things that happened in Singapore was um, the coming together of the sort of Muslim population, which which is the ethnic Malays were there first, and then some influence from the Dutch colonization that's all around that. And then there's a very, very large, sizable minority population of ethnic Chinese, who, by the way, were there long before the British, because the Chinese also had their kind of trading zones, and empire would be probably the wrong word to use, but but they had a, a, a sphere of influence that definitely went down there
0: into the south. Yeah, so it's always been kind of an open city, and it's always been a city about commerce. It's always been a place in which The free flow of trade and of public engagement for purposes of profit was really central. It was, uh, as Tom said, it was a crucial refueling station. At the end of the 19th century, it becomes a real center for rubber production. And of course, that's going to be hugely important, sadly, but hugely essential in the global conflicts of the 20th century. The Japanese invade in what's it, 1941, I think, and it becomes it's occupied by the Japanese throughout the Second World War. And then in the welter of kind of colonial and post-colonial activity that happened at the end of the Second World War when independent nation states were formed or there were attempts to form independent nation states, Singapore has this very uneasy kind of dynamic, but very uneasy kind of political profile. And so tensions around... Ethnic and religious identity go up in Singapore.
1: If I could just say one more thing about the British Empire, because the British Empire is going to be playing a role in a lot of what we do in this. Not only because I'm sitting here at a British university, but partially, I have to say, there's a lot of attention being paid right now in academic and uh, pu- you know uh, public discourse about the British Empire, and the British Empire is a is a complicated. It's a complicated set of historical uh, processes, right? And it is a truism to say, oh yeah, the British Empire was very hands-off. Well, it was hands-off and it wasn't, right? As long as the military
0: bit kept working. And the economic bit.
1: But also the economic, as long as the money kept coming or the money from the resources, then everything was fine. And what happened in the 1950s was there was a violent anti-colonial liberation movement in Malaysia, which is the hinterland of Singapore. The British were... You know, involved in shooting wars, and then and then there's the Cold War and Japan and and Vietnam, et cetera,
0: all playing a role. Right, in it. and so it becomes just for the sake of our listeners, it becomes another place which in the 1950s and 60s was understood to be as a kind of frontier in the Cold War conflict between. Western democratic capitalism and the Eastern bloc. And there was a lot of misinformation promulgated about whether the Domano theory was even valid or whether Singapore would have fallen. But there's a great deal of attention and it seems to map onto ethnicity. And it, particularly in the case of our project, it maps onto what sound represents. So to bring this back to the Adan, intoned by the Musain from the prayer tower. Traditionally, we've all seen these images just as we've heard those sounds in Western thriller films. We've also seen the images of the tall tower above the Sukh or above the market of or the kasbah of Marrakesh. And that's the prayer tower from which the Musain would intone the call to prayer. The travel with the Muslim diaspora, it was there in Singapore. And Singapore, as Tom said, Singapore's geographical location is indigenous Malay, and the Malay population had been majority Muslim for centuries. The Chinese come, the British are there. The urban density of the city goes up. Skyscrapers are built. There are much higher population density per square mile. And so in addition to having these diversifying ethnicities and different markers of religious affiliation, The city is also quite concerned by the 1960s with containing expressions of religious affinity that might present sources of sonic conflict.
1: So by the time Singapore established itself as a separate city-state from Malaysia, it's very good at playing the two sides in the Cold War off against each other, and there is a political consolidation around a kind of one-party state. And what they want to do is, they, like you say, Chris, they want to establish a kind of stability. Because stability is what, it turns out, stability is not only good for politics, it's good it's for good business. It's good business. It's really good for business. And Singapore in the last 20, 30 years has discovered that it's very, very good at yeah. business. So what you're talking about now, like 2000, early 2000s, right, is a place that's been contained somehow. It's not a place of democracy, as everybody, like people know that Singapore is not really a democracy, It's a place that's been contained and where conflict has been pushed down. Ethnic conflict in particular is regarded as, if not taboo, like, you know, not the point.
0: It creates adverse business conditions, and those are to be avoided. And so there's a tension here, because traditionally the Malaysian population, when it was a small, when it was founded, it was a city of less than a thousand people, a village of a thousand people. But it gets denser. It has one of the densest urban populations anywhere in the globe now. And so in the 1960s and 70s, the municipal government decides that the public projection of the Adhan across the soundscape of the entire city is no longer acceptable because it implies the predominance of one religion over another, and that is to be kept down, as Tom said. And so at that point, the majority Muslim population is incensed at this. They believe this is a kind of sonic religious repression but a compromise is reached and they begin to broadcast the adhan over loudspeakers and to direct the loudspeakers inwards toward the mosques rather than outward across the cityscape. So it's it's a contestation, literally sonically, directionally, and also metaphorically turns inward. And then there's even, as time goes on, and this can all be traced in newspapers and actually municipal legislation. There's a fantastic article by someone you know, Tom, I think, Tung Sun Lee. Yeah,
1: Yeah. a Singaporean, originally Singaporean, ethnomusicologist. The
0: article is called Technology in the Production of Islamic Space, The Call to Prayer in Singapore. And that's really what we're talking about. We're talking about contesting space or reimagining space or finding compromise about space.
1: I would say it's about designing space. Excellent. So what I take away from this is that like you can design sound spaces anytime you build a four walls that you know you're going to have a sound in you even you know, people were thinking about that as long as there's been sound indoors but what what we're getting here with the, the turning the the loudspeakers inwards this is a kind of urban sonic design with high political stakes high ethical stakes and it's really in our lifetime this is a way to look at the our contemporary cities and their Contestable sounds. Yeah.
0: And one thing we're going to talk about a lot, both on the podcast and also in the big book is competition not only about whose sound gets to dominate public space, but about who gets to define what is music, what is sound, and what is noise. Those are Mm. all highly contested definitions. And it gets into issues of social politics and social power.
1: And so you remember Mozart, right? In the beginning. One of the things that the that, that letter's about is like, you know what? I don't do noise. I only do music. And I'm not interested in ugly sounds for ugly subjects. And that's his attempt to kind of design. Sorry, now I'm really, I'm leaning way out the window now, but what the heck. That's his attempt to design a kind of sound world, an imaginary sound world. And what the the sonic designers, the urban designers and politicians in Singapore are doing are they designing Singapore
0: itself as a kind of piece. They're tailoring it. They're customizing the city itself and sound conduct within the city. And so we have this interim period, which Tang Sun Lee tracks beautifully through period newspapers and municipal court records about various legislation that's undertaken or people who are accused of violating the legislation. And the Muslim population resists this because it's perceived, quite rightly, as a constriction, constraining of what's formerly been a much freer and universalized expression, until it gets to the point that the sound speakers directed inward toward the mosque itself are also not considered to be sufficiently sequestered. And the decision is taken to shift the sounding of the call to prayer from shared space, the shared space of the city or the shared space of the mosque itself, into a kind of virtual shared space and to broadcast it over radio. And Mm. so the recording uh, of the Adon that we heard at the beginning of this postcard actually comes from Singaporean radio. It's actually broadcast five times daily on two different Malay language radio channels, and also on an audio channel on the television. And so now, in Tang Sun Lee's beautiful depiction, the space is still created. Sound still creates the space, but the space is now virtually linked and linked via the mediation of technology. It is no longer shared physical proximity. It is a kind of experiential proximity. Everywhere in the city, everywhere on the peninsula, when people turn on the radio to those channels, those Malay language channels... To hear the call to prayer, they perform ablutions, they unroll the prayer rug, they kneel toward Mecca, and they pray together in this virtual space.
1: Radio, by the time this is happening, is not a new technology. Radio's been with us since the early years of the 20th century. And what I'd be interested, Chris, in asking you then is let's back up now from Singapore just slightly, actually quite a lot, and let's talk a little bit about the radio and the mediation of the Islamic world through sound, music. Yeah, I think
0: Tom is teeing something up for me, which I appreciate. It's a story of a person and a historical moment, which I quite like telling. Radio is going to be another theme that we come back again, to which we come back again and again and again. Because radio really is, it's not the only example, but it's a, it's a core example of our key themes in the podcast, but also in the big book, which is about how labor and energy and data together shape sound worlds. And radio is a medium that does all of those things. It has done that throughout the 20th century, and even now in the always online internet-wired 21st century, in many different contexts and in many different ways. It's always been a medium because of its delivery method as broadcast radio, because of its delivery method, because of its aural rather than visual focus, but especially by the ubiquity of access which it provided. Radio broadcast can be heard, that which is broadcast upon radio can be heard by anybody within range of the signal. And there have been moments in radio history when tiny, tiny little stations of 10 or 25 watts had enormous impact in small geographical locations, and other times when gigantic stations pumping amplifiers of 50 or 60,000 watts have blanketed a hemisphere. But I want to talk about a particular moment within the Muslim world in which radio functions, again, with complex and profound geopolitical intentions and impacts. And that has to do in the period between the 1930s and the 1950s, as North Africa, and specifically the nation of Egypt, was moving from being a British protectorate toward first independence under a secular president, and then eventually the intention of taking its position on the world stage. So I'm thinking about the singer Um Kulthum, and because we are somewhat pressed for time here, I will delegate to other episodes my rhapsodic appreciations of the musicianship of the great Um Kulthum who was a singer born to a family of musicians on the Upper Nile, and she later migrated to Cairo in the 1930s. And she became a a media star through the media of radio and especially of film. She grew up and was taught, as was trained in music by her family, at a time when there were strongly sequestered zones for male music making versus female music making, radio occupied this space kind of in between because she could be in a radio studio with her father and brothers and uncles, but the signal of the, was being broadcast could be heard all over the Muslim world because it was broadcast on the Egyptian radio system, which had been built with the assistance of the British and represented a kind of -of state-of-the-art radio broadcast facility in Cairo in the 1950s. And by the 1960s and early 1970s, Um Kulthum's bi-monthly Thursday night radio broadcasts, which were 15 minutes of live Arabesque music accompanied by traditional Egyptian classical styles, was heard all over the Near East. In fact, her performances were so popular that traffic in Cairo's streets would literally come to a halt. People driving shops would... uh, people driving would stop their cars and open their car doors and shops would open the doors to the street and all turn on their radio to the Egyptian broadcasting system so that everyone throughout this reconstituted, formerly virtual, but now actually shared sound space could hear Uncle Thum.
1: I just wanted to pick up on, by way of building a little bridge across the two postcards, right at the end of the first postcard, we talked about the network of opera troops and That, of course, was a network that functioned on the back of, they didn't build the roads, so the operas could get around. They built it so the post could move. In fact, one of the most important aspects of the Holy Roman Empire, which was itself a sort of supranational state, was that it's, it's control of the post. And the British also designed the radio station, the radio infrastructure, the wired and wireless infrastructure across their empire. Not so that Various forms of culturally interesting entertainment could be transported, but as uh, technologies of command, control, propaganda, information flow, right? And it's funny how in the post-colonial period, as the British Empire rapidly but not immediately falls to pieces, its communications infrastructure stays the same and becomes just like those roads were that took the opera all the way Mozart's fantasy about the Islamic world all the way from Vienna via Berlin to Bucharest, just like that so so these these radio stations in the ones in Lebanon, which would have been also really big important in this right they they would have been a, they would have been French they're remnants of the European imperial infrastructure that's already there, and it becomes a way of transporting sound by the the people who are now have control of the radio
0: stations who are different people, yeah, and in fact. In this same period of the 1950s and 1960s there's a reason that authoritarian regimes try to control broadcast resources right because of their ubiquity because of their portability because you cannot control who hears them and so it's axiomatic in some of those revolutionary situations that radio and tv apparatus would be some of the first resources that you attempted to control and there are heartbreaking moments i'm thinking one particularly in in the hungarian revolution in 1956 when the Soviets re-exerted control and some of the last words that those of us in the West heard from the revolutionaries was people broadcasting on radio and saying, farewell friends, pray for our souls. So this kind of sonic expression is right at the absolute heart of why and how empires thrive, control, erode, compete, and sometimes are transformed. And it's a topic to which we will come back repeatedly on the podcast about how sound both portrays and reflects, but also enables cultural transformations.
1: We started today talking about global history and how global history is not the history of everything. But global history is the history of connections, of networks or nodes of networks or little pieces of networks. And I think what we've done today is we've talked about How and how beautiful this music is, by the way. And so I got to rhapsodize about the abduction and you, you know, how in both cases they are transported on these networks, on these things that are themselves mappable, if you want, onto other kinds of structures from other zones of human existence, right? So like empires. And it's the empires that make the structures, but then the people moving inside the structures and the music... And the sounds moving around the structures, they tend to do their own things. So that's what's really fun about the, d- the discovery of of working in this bigger picture thing is you start seeing because you're not just focused on some sort of arbitrary boundary. History of the United States, history of Egypt, history of Singapore. You're looking at contacts and networks and and how things travel around. You suddenly see sometimes something that was familiar. You see it in an unfamiliar light. And if we can do that, that's kind of, I think that's what every historian really wants to do. But I think that's also our, you wouldn't you agree? That's also one of our main aims here.
0: Yeah. It's to open up the voices and hold space for other voices and come back to those stories which have been told monolithically and to tell those stories, to unpack those stories, to share those stories, to diversify those stories in ways that engages us anew. You've been listening to Sounding History. Keep in touch.
1: Whether you're a music lover, history enthusiast, student, or just plain interested, we'd love to hear what you think. Contact us at soundinghistorypodcast.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter and check out all the show notes. And follow us on Instagram at Sounding History Podcast and Twitter at Sounding History. We look forward to hearing your thoughts
0: questions and suggestions and if you like what we're doing we'd so appreciate it if you'd leave us a review to help other folks find the show and finally
1: if you're a new listener and want to learn more about who we are and the ongoing book project that inspired the podcast check out episode one
0: Sounding History is funded by grants from the University of Southampton Faculty of the Arts and Humanities and by Texas Tech University production by Seedpod Sound at SeatPodSound.com. Next week's final episode of our first series, Data in the Anthropocene, takes us to the sound worlds of today's data revolutions. I'll be looking into the link between music streaming services and carbon intensity, and Tom will visit the strange world of AI-generated jazz. I'm Tom. And I'm Chris. Until next time.